Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. Hello, everybody. My name is Carolyn. And I am a grateful member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon and Alateen. And I love saying that because I got the privilege of going to Sweden in Stockholm. I went to an English-speaking Al-Anon meeting. And there were Al-Anons from all over the world, literally, that were there. And what I heard was the message of hope. Been to all kinds of meetings all over the United States. And it doesn't matter what color, what color you are, what financial degree, it is the language of the heart. And I always remember that, that um, it is a, it's equal all of us. I want to do want to thank the committee for inviting me. Uh, this is a real special treat for me. Uh, I want to put in a plug for Ficky Paw. I don't know if y'all have been there. I, that was my first time I got taped was at a Ficky Paw convention. It's the AA Young People, Florida. I don't even know what all they all stand for, but it was the young people in AA. And what I heard was these young were these young people that knew the big book. And everything that was said this morning, they already knew it. And how wonderful it is um, to hear that it's not generational. It's not like just for the 1930s or for the older group. It is alive and well in our young people in AA. I've also been to some Alateen uh, conferences. And I hear the anger and the suicide and the damage that has been done in an alcoholic family. But more than that is what I hear is the recovery. That these kids come up and say, you know, I know my parents did the best they could. And if they didn't give me anything else, they gave me the 12-step recovery program. And they keep coming back. And no matter what they have to go through, whether their own journey of alcoholism or drugs or whatever, they know where to get the answer. And that has held me in good stead also. Um, I'm going to do something different today. I, I've, I've told my story for 30 years. I guess I should, I don't have a sobriety date, but I have a date when I first learned about the problem in our family. It was uh, February of 1977. So I've been around a little while. That's 30 years. I can't believe it. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm a big newcomer. And right now I sort of do. Um, I'm right in the middle of an Al-Anon slip. <laughs> now, Al-Anon slips don't kick us out of the program because we all have them just about every day. And it's just um, losing your temper or helping somebody too much or... Um, um, Revenge. I love that one. <laughs> um, but we keep coming to meetings for our own recovery after you've been here for a while. But I uh, sponsor a gal who, um, who I knew had mental problems. She was on our medicine. She was coming to meetings. She was growing in our program. And she has a network of her own friends. So even though I was sponsoring her, she had a counselor and she had a psychiatrist. And I really felt like my job as sponsor was a cheerleader, you know, an acceptance. 
You know, I think acceptance is the most powerful recovery tool that we have because that's what I've heard this morning is we accept each other just like we are. No matter where we come from or what we've done, when we come here, we hear others that have done the same thing or worse, and and we have immediate acceptance. And when we have that sponsor that listens to all the crap and and loves us anyway, um, and we... There's just so much healing there. And I have seen her heal with everybody's love. She has a great network. But she went into the hospital for a, a back injury. And they kept her um, laying on her back for three days so she wouldn't have a um, headache, you know, like when you have a spinal tap. And she is heavy. And when she was able to get up, she couldn't remember, lost all her short-term memory. And she couldn't walk. She was very weak. And she couldn't get in and out of bed. And she kept falling all the time. Um, she went to a rehab during the time that I was on her two-week vacation. And I've sort of been her, on her health records to help her with her pills and stuff when she gets into these places. And, you know, the first thought, my Al-Anon thought was, if I had been there. Mm-hmm. Now, that's gotten more Al-Anons into more trouble. Because let me tell you, I am just as powerless over her as I am over the alcoholic and over anybody that takes care of her. I am not the only one that is looking after her care, but I still felt it. I felt it in the gut that if I had been there, I would have been able to speak up and get other things done that didn't get done. And I was so angry because they let a urinary tract infection go for a week. Ooh, mad. Um, if I had been there, you know. So I had to let go of that. I had to talk to my sponsor. Thank God for sponsors. Um, and and now they she went to rehab for seven weeks, and she's still falling, and she still has no short-term memory. So how much do you help? How much do you let go of? How much do you ask other people to help? I'm right in the middle of that dilemma today as we speak. Um, And I came anyway. (laughs) It's just like coming back to a meeting even after you've had a drink. It's like you have to go. I have to take care of myself, and I have to have my own sponsor, and I have to be here to hear what I need to hear this weekend and for me. Um, How a couple of things. What what my test for me is is the three C's, and I hope y'all have heard of the three C's that we talk about in Al-Anon quite a bit. There's one is I didn't cause it, and it's always amazing to me how the Al-Anon suck it up. You know that we caused it somehow. Um, a lot of times they tell us that we caused it, and we believe it. <laughs> But even kids think that they caused their parents to drink, or if they had been there, they wouldn't have, you know, passed out or whatever. And it's just always amazing to me how we do this, and I have no idea how. I just know it happened. And that's what sort of why our tool is to get out of that, is we really do not cause it, no matter what the circumstances are. We can't control the drinking or anybody else's behavior, and I can't control whether Cindy um, falls or not or 
takes not takes her not takes her medicine, which she forgets. And um, uh, I can't and I can't cure it. It is not in my power to cure Cindy's illness or her physical stuff. I have to remember that my part in the whole thing is acceptance and cheerleader and and sharing with others in her care. I am not it. I am not her higher power. I want to be. <laughs> That's my slip. I want to be her higher power. I wanted to call her so bad this morning and ask her if she would taken her medicine. And what I did, I did call her because she usually calls me and didn't know when she would get me. But I called her just to see how she was and love her. And that's the difference um, of working these tools one day at a time. Um, the first day I left her at home uh, by herself, uh, another one of our online tools is to have a God can. And I like, you've heard of God boxes before, but I've always called it a God can. And it's any kind of Pringles can or coffee can or anything you've got. And you write down the problem of what you're trying to hang on to physically on a piece of paper and you put it in the God can. And then you turn it over and you say, I can't, God can. Now that does not stop you from thinking about it. (laughs) It keeps coming back and keeps coming back. But when it does come back, what you say is, I've already put it in the God can. God can, I can't. I did it. It doesn't matter how long you're in program. I still use those simple things, going to meetings, using my guide cans, checking my three C's to see what I'm getting caught up in, and uh, and coming and sharing with you. And this is the most beautiful part of the whole thing. So um, I've, that's been going on. At the same time all this was happening, I had my annual mammogram. Mm-hmm. Six little calcium spots the size of a pinpoint. And only 20% are usually cancer and minor cancer. So one step at a time, one day at a time, one meeting at a time. Uh, We're just in the middle of it. Uh, I don't even know what we're going to do for a treatment plan yet. Um, I just know I have it. I know the name of it, ductal carcinoma in situ, which is almost considered precancerous with some doctors. It's not even a cancer yet. If you don't do anything about it, it turns into a cancer. So I caught myself being sort of a drama queen. You know, now I have breast cancer. Feel sorry for me. It's another Al-Anon slip. (laughs) Drama queens are wonderful. I never thought I was one, and so sort of exciting to try to try on that shoes. (laughs) I found it doesn't work. Uh, um, maybe I just don't know how to do it good enough yet. I'll have to keep practicing. <laughs> but um, I don't even know. I don't even have an appointment with the doctors until Wednesday. So we'll know at that time. Um, I do know that I have been blessed with, um, I've been given information, and you'll hear when I really get to my story, um well, I'll tell a little bit now. I After I was in al um, I went back to school like so many people have and to become a nurse because what I figured is if I'm all this do-gooder, help other people thing, 
why not do it for somebody that appreciates it and I get paid? <laughs> so I did go back to school and um, I've been a nurse and I've been an oncology nurse. And in my mother's side of the family, there's a lot of cancer. And I have been the keeper of the list. And my great-grandmother had cancer, and it goes down. I'm into the fifth generation now of keeping people. I'm in the third generation, but it's it's going on down. And there's quite a bit of it. So um, I feel like God has given me all the answers before I had the question. Because all that time I was learning all that stuff, it was certainly not the intent to have to deal with it myself. But here I am. I was not upset when they gave me the, the diagnosis because I knew what it was. I knew it wasn't the most serious thing in the world. And I know that I'll die of something else. Probably do-gooding. Because <laughs> that's my disease. Um Another little uh, tool that we use to see whether we're helping or whether we're harming uh, is that we all know the golden rule, to do unto others what you'd have them do, un- for you, do unto you. And in L9, we sort of call it the silver rule, and I've heard it called different things, but I call it the silver rule, is don't do for others what they can do for themselves. And that helps most of the time. Right now, I'm still not quite for sure what goes on, but I have to do what I can and then leave it. It's sort of like doing the footwork and everything else in my life. I've done the footwork and left the results up up to God. And know that if anything happens to Cindy this weekend, it's not because I wasn't there. That she has a higher power that's looking after her and a lot of other health care and a lot of other friends. Okay. I have one more little slip to share. You're going to be tired of all my slips and wonder why I'm still here. Um, I have heart palpitations, and uh, one thing that sets it off are, are sodas, just simple caffeine sodas. And at one time, I had been three years without a soda and had learned to drink water. I can see how y'all say water. <laughs> um, and, of course, what I did when I found out about in the middle of all this is I was at the right time in the right place, Labor Day weekend, free sodas, and I had one. And 15 minutes ago before this started, I was thinking, now my energy level is really low. I don't know if I'm going to have the energy that I love to have when I'm speaking. I think I'll have a soda. I did not, by the grace of God, um, because I can't always predict my behavior after a soda. Or what I'll say. <laughs> I tend to forget all the traditions. And I've been known to gossip and tell things that I shouldn't tell that I've heard from other people. So um, I chose not to do it. And that is the difference. Uh, as an Al-Anon, I do have the choice whether to drink or not or whether to have a soda or not. And I admire all of you guys. I My hat's off to you. I don't know. If I have this much trouble with a soda, how in the world... <laughs> I would ever be able to be in your chairs. (laughs) Oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, let me tell you a little bit about how I was and some of the things that happened that um, 
at about 18 months, and I'm going to skip around there too, so I guess my ADD is kicking in now too. Um, 18 months for me. And I think this is just to show us how some of our behavior and our attitudes sort of start in our toddlerhood. Uh, my big thing was guilt. Uh, whatever you didn't have guilt, I got it. Um, I, my parents smoked and I was toddling around, got into my mom's cigarette and was, you know, just pretending like I was smoking. Now she told me the story, I don't know. Uh, but she peeked around the door thing and um, and saw it in my mouth, and she didn't say anything. She just watched me. But I caught my eye caught that she was watching me, and I bit down on it. And of course, they were unfiltered back then, and all that stuff was in a 18 month old mouth. And I was spitting and fuming and everything, and I felt guilty. And I don't know if it was that or that I'm afraid of fire, but I never have smoked all my life. <laughs> so guilt can do some good things for you. Um, my oldest daughter, when she was about 18 months, um, we were, my husband was in the Navy and we had a lot of parties. Now you party hardy in the Navy in the 1960s. That was before any of this new stuff came along. And even the women when we got together, it was required that you had booze in the punch so that people would be more compatible and, and sharing and get to meet each other. So at our parties, um, even the the everything had booze in it. There were rum balls and whiskey cookies and <laughs> artillery punch and you know you named it just in all the stuff. But uh, after everybody left and I went on to bed uh, with and we well we all sort of passed out actually. Um, the next morning she. We realized that she had gone around and finished all the drinks. Now, thank God some of them were diluted because when you put that much alcohol in a toddler, uh, and I didn't know this until the, the about the effects of it until after we were in rehab. Um, she was wild. She was up on that rocky horse. You know those horses that have the springs on it? She was going to town. She was having a good time. And she was drunk in a coop. <laughs> at 18 months. Um, when we were new in the program, when my husband got uh, sent to a rehab from his work, um, we realized that she had a problem, and she realized she had a problem. She got caught without a driver's license at 14 uh, with a DUI. And she was actually visiting my mother, and she sent her back to us quick. And my husband picked her up at the airport and took her to her first AA meeting before he even brought her home. And God willing, she's still sober with 28 years of alimony. Oh, AA. <laughs> I have to give her a hand, too. Uh, so starting at 14, it is possible. You know, they gave her such a hard time. Well, you've, uh, I've spilled more booze than you've had to drink. And she said, that may be true, but I need to be here, and I earn my seat. Okay, that was her story. <laughs> I'd love to tell her whole story, trust me. You know about the Alnons, when they die, instead of their lives pass in front of them, everybody else's life <laughs> passes in front of them. <laughs> but we had four kids. 
she was the oldest, had two girls and then two boys. And the and the the third kid, oldest son, uh, was really the favorite son of his daddy. He was his first, he was finally got him a boy, and uh, we even named him Charles the Fourth. Long line. He was a very much loved kid. But at age 18 months or so, uh, when I would give him cold medicine uh, that was supposed to put kids to sleep, made him hyper. And before I knew anything about the disease of Al-Anon or al- and alcoholism, I can remember saying, I hope this kid never gets into drugs or alcohol because he behaves differently than the other three kids. Um, one of them it put to sleep big time, and the other two sort of didn't seem to make a difference. So my opinion, we start out early with our character defects <laughs> and the way we're built. And then our life experiences molds them and can in- increase them or make them worse. And um, then we just have to deal with whatever we have to do. Uh, this son that I'm talking about, Charles, um, when we were living in California, was introduced to marijuana and drinking. Well, he probably was introduced to drinking at our own home, so I can't say that was out there. He had already been stealing beer out of the trunk, I think, before third grade. But when we got out there, he got introduced to marijuana and, uh, and stealing from uh, convenience stores. And I couldn't catch him. I was just a wild woman. You know, I tried all the lectures, and I uh, tried taking him to um, city jail to let him see what happened if he continued on this path. Of course, none of that worked. Um, I took him to counseling, and he started getting into trouble uh, when we moved to Jacksonville in Florida. And he was in... Sixth grade, I think. But he was already well into his disease. Um, at 13, we did a, a intervention with the family physician and put him in a rehab. So if you're in a rehab at 13, you know, there's been a lot of stuff going on before that. And he did not really stay clean and sober. And we put him in again at 15. And all this time, I'm taking him to uh, meetings. I'm taking him to counseling. I'm trying to get him to Alateen. He did go to some of the Alateen meetings. Um, I went to visit him in Start Centers, which is when when you do steal and end up in city jail. Um, They try to rehab you, too, and he went to them. I don't know that he was ever clean or sober in there. And I took his eighth-grade finals to him in city jail, uh, adolescent, what do they call it, adolescent, Jail. Juvenile. Juvenile jail. How could I forget that? And I would take him, um, and go, I would, and he passed. Now how in the world he passed, I'll, I'll never know, cause not only wasn't, he skipped most of school, but he never brought home a book or anything, and he still passed his grade. So he was a smart kid. He was a good looking kid. He had hair that women would die for. It was just naturally wavy and blonde and, in fact, as a as a little kid, they called him Farrah Fawcett, if y'all remember. <laughs> Big, beautiful, bushy, blonde hair. He was a good-looking kid. Um, kind. He was probably one of the kindest of all the kids, caring for animals and other people. But he loved his 
substances. And he did say to me one time that he had used everything but needlework, including PCP, CPC, whatever it is, PCP. (laughs) (laughs) Scared me to death. And I really didn't know the difference between guilt and shame for a long time. And I heard, because uh, I was just always so embarrassed by my whole family all the time. And that guilt is uh, is when you f- you're sad that things have happened. You're, you feel guilty. You wish you had changed it and all that kind of stuff. But shame is, is when you become bad, a bad person. And I didn't stay there very long, but I can definitely have been there. The shame of... Um, when when I was taking him to aftercare and he brought drugs into the treatment center and made the newspapers. Um, I have a couple of infamous moments that I just want to share that one. Anyway, bless his heart, um, our rules got simpler in our home. Of course, he ran away most of the time. But uh, he asked if he could come back and go back and finish 10th grade when he was... Um, two years ahead of that. And uh, we said yes. And and our only rules were that you couldn't drink or, or smoke pot in our home, that you had to have a full-time job or be in school. And uh, if you were expecting to come home for dinner, let me know so I'd have enough food for you. And that was it. Our rules had gone from, you know, this long and consequences and, you know, contracts and all that stuff that never worked to just some simple basic uh, things. And he did abide by those, which is unusual for a lot of uh, teenage teenagers. Uh, I knew that he had lost his job. I knew that he had lost his girlfriend. I knew that he had had to hawk some of his tools. And I had been in Al-Anon nine years at that time and been to a zillion AA, open AA meetings. And I was just sure that he was hitting bottom and that this is when he was going to find his sobriety. I was just doing my thing, going to my meetings, you know, learning how to, to do detachment and stuff, and they came to work and said that he had shot himself. First thing I did was, on the way home, was bought a new coffee pot, because I knew our room and our house would be full of AAs, taking care of my husband and taking care of me. It was real interesting. As much of a caretaker as I am, during this time of my recovery from this, um, we couldn't take care of each other. I was so glad that he had his sponsor and his friends and his life. And I had my sponsor and my friends and my life. Because I would share my heart ache into my friends, and he had his. And when we were together... We had that acceptance that I was talking about earlier, that we could just sit there and hold hands and not try to fix each other. Uh, it was a very difficult time, and I do credit Elanon for healing me back to life. It took a long time, and I went through various stages. You know, some um, sometimes I could sort of rationalize it or come up with some idea that that what it was. Uh, but I retired at, at 16 years of after um, going to work, and um, 
I actually started some real meditation, and I really identified with one of the workshop leaders about her meditation. I always knew my meditation was lacking. I really wasn't doing the 11th step, as the book shares with us. So I, And I knew I needed to start walking, and so I sort of combined the two. And I live about two and a half blocks from a river. And so at sunrise, and the sun is a pretty hard taskmaster. It comes up every morning whether I... <laughs> whether I'm ready or not. So I have to get out of bed before my brain comes to and hit the street and um, and walk down there. And what I try to do is on the way down there, I try to empty all the garbage that's going around in my head and go down there and just be at peace with God in the sunrise and in his glory and then let him talk to me on the way home. And one of those mornings as I was walking back home, uh, it dawned on me, God-given, I know, that what I had not let go of with our, my son Charles was that we hadn't cured him. I didn't control it, I didn't cause it, and I can't cure it. Insidious. As insidious as it is for your drinking, it is for us, those three C's. It hides in our very core, and we don't even know that it's there. And only by keep coming back to these programs and listening to other people share has it come out as to what I have hung on to and what I need to let go of. And it was it was just because there was light on the, you know, I got what it was, it went away. You know, all that time I'd been carrying it. But I didn't have to do anything or shout to the world or get on my knees or anything. Just the awareness of it, it lifted. And my whole life, my brain came back. I just started getting doing stuff in service. I just have had the best time in my entire life uh, when I was able to let go of the fact that we couldn't have cured him. I've had so many experiences in between and how I've looked when I got here. So catch me another time when I'm not in the middle of all my slips and you'll hear the rest of my story. <laughs> Because I want to talk a little bit about service. Uh, this is the other thing that's sort of the thread that's held my life together through tragedies and, and fun times and everything. Um, because my husband went through a rehab, they had me come in also. And uh, I do not like the term codependent. It was not around when I came into L9. Um, they they accepted me as part of the family disease of alcoholism. And I got to go to um, therapy rooms while he was doing his therapy rooms into to, uh, AA. And I have some very firm feelings about um, rehabs. I think they're wonderful and we work closely with them, that they catch people uh, in the moment of crisis and we're the long-term recovery. We need them, they need us. And so I've always gone back to uh, rehabs in our in our town to share with those who were there when I I needed them. And I think that's anything in service. It's sort of like what I come in with is what I can give back to others because I've been there. And I go to city jail. There's a family group. They have a family group there on Monday nights. And I go only once every two months and talk to the families. And I can say, I was sitting in chairs just like you. And this is what I looked like when I came into these rooms. And this is how I found my son and about the pass and the test. And this identification, it's the same identification that you get in, in AA. It's just a different identification. 
Um, there's things I can't identify with. I leave that to somebody else. But I need to go back and be reminded every chance I get where I came from and how I am today. Uh, I came in pretty raggedy, and here I am in clothes with no holes in them. <laughs> and I, I, I'm sort of skipping around there, but it sort of dawned on me. Um, what I wanted to say was, uh, you know, so many of you, you tell how you were when you came into these rooms, and you, you'd think you were, but you still look pretty darn good. I mean, usually the alcoholic is the one that's still looking good. And you look at the Alnon that's elbowing them over there to get them, you know, so that they know what they're listening to, and they look like crap. <laughs> so I looked around the rooms, and I looked around the Alnon rooms, and I said, I'm not going to look like that anymore, and I'm going to start taking care of me. And I got a haircut, and I got my teeth fixed, and I got a new pair of glasses. Ah, that's a Chuck Chamberlain, new pair of glasses. <laughs> Both literally and figuratively, because I learned to accept the disease of alcoholism for what it was and not what I wanted it to be. And I learned my part in it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about my part in it. It's so hard to find what you don't do. (laughs) Sometimes I'm almost jealous of you that you know what you did. (laughs) And you know you've got some amends to make. And it's been a little, taken me a little bit longer to see um, what I haven't done. And I would say the most biggest character defect is neglect. And the reason Alnons get into neglect of themselves and their kids and their house is that we're so focused on getting you guys sober. You know, if y'all would just get sober, everything would be okay. <laughs> well, it don't work that way. Whether you get sober or not, I had to learn how to take care of myself. And I had to learn how to take care of the house. And I had to learn how to take care of my side of the street and make my own amends to my kids and to other people that I had, had neglected by taking care of the alcoholic. So what I'm in the process right now of doing in my program is, is um, any kind of old resentment that comes up, um, taking care of it. And now one of the things that's come up is I moved out of the house and totally redid the house. And anything in the house that was there with an, a, resi- a resentment, like the dishes my husband had given me that I never liked from the beginning, he gave them to me. But I kept them because he had given them to me. They're gone. <laughs> uh, we had lived in California uh, just a couple of miles from <clears throat> the national parks. <clears throat> And we never went to them. So a couple of weeks ago, I got the chance to go on a tour, and we visited six national parks out west with a couple of Al-Anon friends. It was a blast. And while we were passing where we used to live, and and from there to the park, uh, it was hot, it was long, it was nothing. And I said, no wonder he didn't want to go. We had two babies at the time. There is no way in hell I should have gone to that national park. And damn it, he was right. <laughs> but I got rid of that resentment by putting light on it and putting truth on it. Because my thing I'd like to leave you with is truth will set you free. Um, 
I've sort of left out one little part, one more little part. Um, let's see, Catherine Sober, Christine, I don't know. Charles has got his uh, 17 years chip in heaven. And um, uh, Christopher is doing fine. Uh, because of the program, um, because he was only seven when we got here, and he didn't uh, actually go to a lot of the meetings. He went to Alateen a little bit, but he saw the principles work in our family, and he saw what we did, and he used them, and he has a great program and a spiritual program. So even though he used um, marijuana and lots of other stuff in junior high school, um, and did a couple of things he shouldn't have done, too. He's doing okay today with his own higher power. And I have to remember that, that he has his own higher power. Um, 26 years, uh, my husband came down with uh, lung cancer and passed away rather quickly. Uh, my feelings on the whole thing, that was when he couldn't do things for himself that I could be there. And again, I thank God that I had all my experience that I could take care of him that I had the answers before I knew the questions. Um, but I've got a couple of uh, true confessions about during the time he was sick. Um, one of the things that he didn't tolerate, that he just seemed to have no compassion for when we were in the car, if we were hurting or anything, he would he would just zoom through things and, and never really slowed down to take care of other people. And so he had the cancer spread to his bones and he was in a lot of pain. And when I was, had to drive, because he couldn't drive anymore, I want to tell you that I wanted to hit every pothole in the street <laughs> from here to the doctor's office. And only by the having to all these meetings and the grace of God did I not do it. But let me tell you, the thought was there. Um, and then when he was in so much chemo, uh, he had hot flashes. And here was a man that really didn't like women that much. I think he was scared of us, to tell you the truth. And, uh, and him having pot flashes, it was like, yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> I got my revenge and I didn't have to do it. <laughs> I think that's all of Elnon's dream is we want something to happen, but we don't want to be the one responsible. <laughs> I do have to take responsibility for that. And, uh, and so to make my amends, I rubbed his feet. <laughs> made him feel better. And I took him to meetings and I was able to go with him. Um, and, and especially the special night was the night that he got his 26-year chip, and he was in a wheelchair, of course, bald from the chemo, and looked like a skeleton, but he was there. He was there at the meeting. So we've had a lot of recovery in our family, uh, all, everybody, and that's that's what I really wish for you. Uh, I have no idea what time it is. Oh, good. I'm doing real good. Oh, good. Um... I want to finish with my spiritual life. I think that's one thing Elman sort of forget when they tell their stories. Um, I came in thinking that I knew what the 12 steps meant. Uh, I'd been raised in church. In fact, I was, if you had to describe me on the first night in, in rehab, was probably um, churchy. Little goody two-shoes. <laughs> Trying to do her best to keep everything together. Looking like a battered wife. Knowing that I wasn't in touch with God as much as I used to be, 
and wondered why I was being abandoned. And I knew in my head that I wasn't, that I was the one abandoning him or her. Um, and I learned detachment. I learned how attached I was to him and how focused I was on him. And Alan helped me to the going back to school and the learning how to say no and all the things that first two and a half years were just growing and doing things different and going to meetings and having a sponsor and doing my four-step inventory and reading his. Don't ever do that. <laughs> so I tell you to hide. I tell all my sponsors to hide their inventory, but do it. Um, don't do that. We beat each other over the head with a program. You know, why don't you work your inventory? Why don't you go to a meeting? Uh, as I was changing, he wasn't too for sure he liked it. And so then he would do little tricks to keep me from going to a meeting, like hiding the car keys and taking the spark plugs out. And, or, and he would keep me at home because that was Tuesday night was my night to go out. And we would either, when, when he'd talk me into staying, we either argued all night or he'd go to sleep on the couch. And finally I caught on and said, to hell with that. I'm going to my meeting. Bye. Whether I had to walk or call somebody to come get me or whatever. So it was quite an interesting two and a half years. But it got me to standing up on my own two feet and not so totally focused on him that I couldn't be me. And I like to say that that made us strong. It made him stronger by me not being there all the time, that he couldn't attack me all the time. It made me strong. And we really did, too, become like two oak trees, both strong in our own programs. And it was sort of like what I was talking about after Charles died. We each had our own program and our own um, friends and, and our own identities. We became separate. We were there. After Charles died, my son, uh, I sort of became like a weeping willow tree. With the tears, I saw a lot of tears in the audience, so I know you understand. But if you know anything about weeping willow trees, they have a real deep taproot. And I think that's when my spirituality grew and my understanding of the disease that Charles didn't want to die. He didn't want to be an alcoholic. God wasn't picking on him, and he wasn't picking on me. It happens to the rich, the poor. It happens to everybody. And I sort of, the cancer patients helped me with that, too, to see that it happens to everybody. Um, yes, my spirituality grew very deep at that time. And I, I wasn't involved as much in service, but I kept going to meetings. Um, and going to service, like I was telling you, in institutions, after I had my ex- spiritual experience that I was still trying to cure Charles, um, I got more involved in, in like, group representatives, district representatives, and, and you go to conventions and you go to Southeast Regional Service Seminars and you see all these wonderful people and you don't feel alone and you don't feel that you're the only one or terminally unique, as we say. And I became like, um, a flower in an English garden. But we're all different, but we're all in the garden together. And it takes all of us to have this program. 
it takes the sharing and looking at all the beautiful faces around all the different colors and the different backgrounds and the different roots and it makes us all whole and that's the unity of the first tradition um, now I'm sort of in transition again I feel like a seed that, or an acorn or something that's dropped off and I don't know what I'm going to bloom into now because this is widowhood um, Charles, my husband Charlie has been dead four years and like I'm saying I'm doing all these resentment things I've probably gone to more meetings in these four years than I did before um, and I'm helping carry the message I'm area public outreach and like I said still going to city jail and stuff and um, I don't know what's going to be of me I don't know if there's a relationship ahead of me uh, sometimes it worries me that I don't know that I can bring enough to the table in a new relationship. Will I repeat, you know, the, the blomming on and trying to fix? I don't know. I know I'm attracted to alcoholics. You can put me in any room. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a wedding. There's this whole room of people, the person I picked, and we were talking later and found out he was in AA. <laughs> but at least they're in AA now. <laughs> And on this bus tour that I went on, I sat with an Al-Anon male friend. <laughs> but he needed to be an Al-Anon because his wife passed away from alcoholism. So no matter where I am, I am definitely attracted to you. And I uh, have just loved being here this weekend because I love all of you. And Somebody asked, what's the requirement for being an Al-Anon? And the short answer is, if you love an alcoholic. And so that certainly has put me here. Um Usually when you love an alcoholic, you are affected by them. Usually something happens. So that's sort of the other part that's probably in the book. But uh, it's been a wonderful trip for me. And I just try to meet each challenge with the tools of the program and the love that I get in these friends. And um, I just need your prayers. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.